So welcome. Um, good morning. I'm kind of wondering where everyone else is, <laughs> but hopefully they'll be kind of straggling in. But it's good to see you this morning, and let's just go before the Lord. And Well, first, you know what I want to do? I want to do announcements, and then we're going to pray. Uh, Lori Hamlet asked me to remind you all about Friday night. Tomorrow night um, is women's ministries. It's once a month. Uh, teaching and it's so fun to just grab a bunch of women or go by yourself or just for fellowship and there's going to be teaching Jenna Kelso is going to be teaching on rehab I believe and so you know it's not too late to go you don't have to sign up or anything it's from seven to nine and if you need the address um, I'm sure you can call the church or talk to Suzanne Chris or I and we can get it for you or I think it might be online as well so do that it will be a sweet you won't be sorry and she lives in Chandler. I wanted to mention homework, and I think this is one of them. Okay, there are times, I don't know, okay, I'm gonna, this is confession time. There are times I don't get to my homework right away in the week, right? I might, and I, and I don't recommend this at all, but I might pull it out a little bit later in the week. Am I the only one? And, and what happens then is there's a question or, you know, a suggestion, like pull out your songbook or what have, you know, like pull something out that you've been from your reading plan, you know, through the week, like question in this homework is from your reading, how has God used something in your reading to shape your thinking to help, uh, to train you as a biblical woman? So you might start thinking about like, look over your homework, even if you don't get to all of it, look over it in the beginning of the week, like this afternoon, so you just kind of start thinking about things or do the question, you know, like looking back, um, you know, what was most impactful. If you do that on Wednesday night, you're, you may not remember as much. So just, just kind of a little reminder there. And so do it in sections. And then, yeah, I think that's all. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you this morning. Um, with hearts that want to know you more, with hearts that love you, and that's only because you first loved us, because you sent your Son to take on your righteous wrath on our behalf for forgiveness of sins when we were rebels and hated you. You did that for us, and now we have fellowship with you, we have peace with you, we have all of your promises in the gospel. We have the promise that one day we will be with you in eternity. Oh, Lord, what, um, just what a thought. In the meantime, Lord, you have saved us for a purpose. Um, we have your precious word. We have your Holy Spirit to walk with you and to represent you. And so this morning I ask, Lord, that you would um, draw us to yourself that by your spirit, Lord, you would teach us through your word, through my feeble attempt to share. Lord, this morning we ask that you would be made much of and glorified. Lord, if there's a place where we need conviction, Lord, I pray that that would come from you by your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would all leave here encouraged. Um, I thank you for the the faithful servants who serve in Wellspring Kids and just um, the impact that they're having on those little ones, the next generation. And Lord, I ask for your blessing on that ministry and I ask that you would save hearts. 
and that these little ones would get in the car today and talk about you and that these moms would be uh, just encouraged by that ministry. Thank you for a place to meet. Thank you for a building that we'll be able to meet in next year. Thank you for your provision. Um, and mostly we thank you for your provision of uh, the gospel and saving us. And so, Lord, we commit the morning to you. And it's in your precious son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Okay. So. What we do every time we get together is we take out our notebooks, and we're going to do this, I think, pretty much every time uh, that we do get together, and we're going to talk about why, why we're here. It's Wellspring's purpose, and um, if you don't have a notebook, look on with your neighbor. We are here to equip and encourage the Women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts. We're here to encourage one another to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with his word so that we live gospel-transformed lives. We, that's, that's our goal, our aim, to live gospel-transformed lives, and then it does something. It strengthens the church and its gospel purpose. That's why we're here every week. That's, um, we want to understand and grow in, this, in these disciplines. We want to unite our lives around them. We want to be able to talk to one another about them and ask how we're doing. Um, Wellspring, we focus on three. We focus on our hearts, we focus on our homes, and we focus on ministry. And discipline one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God um, through the Word of God. We do it through the Word of God, and in particular with the Gospel. And when we say heart, remember what we're talking about, biblically speaking. We always want us to, to think biblically. Remember our inner man, it's all of us. It's who we are in our minds, in our emotions, in our desires, our will, our soul. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our heart desires. God transformed our hearts when he saved us. Praise God. And now we're new creatures with new desires. <clears throat> we're united with Christ. That is only a work of God. Remember, it's that one-time event. And now with this new heart, it's still in this mixed condition. There's still indwelling sin in our hearts. And the good news is that sin is no longer our master. But there's still the lingering effects. There's still a residue of sin. And we thank God that we're not who we once were. We once were dead. We once were lost. We once were hopeless. That was the condition that we were in before in our inner man, before he intervened and saved us. And we're not yet where we won't battle with sin. That's heaven. So while we're here in this mixed condition, it's necessary for us to care for these hearts, to feed these hearts, to strengthen our hearts, our new man in Christ, with the truth from God's word. We do it with the truth from God's word and with the hope that we have um, in the finished work of Christ, uh, the finished work on the cross in the gospel. His word tells us who he is, who we are, what he's done, and then how he wants us to respond. Our hearts need to be exposed to him in his word so that we can draw near to the one whom we have been united to, Jesus, and to treasure him above all. And we do 
have to be purposeful, okay? And we have to be disciplined. These are disciplines to grow in. We're not perfect in them. This is a lifelong pursuit. So at the beginning of Wellspring, we asked you to pick a reading plan, um, to, read through the, to read through the Bible, to make it a daily habit, to open up his word and to meet with him in his word. To, um, and the purpose in that is to help us to be strengthened and grow in this discipline, to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, to meet with him. It's not to check a box. So at this point, have you fallen behind in that? Have you fallen behind in your reading plan that you had committed to? And are you thinking at this point you're pretty much a failure? Here I go again. I made that commitment, and now I am behind. Well, thankfully, God's love for us isn't dependent on our failures or our successes, right? It's only based on his son's finished work on the cross. So let that be your motivation to worship him in his word. So if you're discouraged, don't give up. Start today. Hit reset. Pick up where you left off. Cross out that date. Don't be a slave to the date, right? Cross it off and just keep going. Do whatever it takes. Keep going. I want to encourage you, and then let's encourage one another to keep going and to persevere. Well, this morning, we are in Discipline 2. Last time we met, Lori kind of gave us uh, an overview, a survey of Scripture of the home, and we're in Discipline 2 because we've graduated now from Discipline 1, and we're moving on, right? No. (laughs) We never graduate from Discipline 1. Never, ever graduate from Discipline 1. We will keep that discipline before our hearts forever. It's the most important thing to do before we get into Discipline 1, our household. Discipline 2 is about our household relationships, and it says she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And you know the first place we make an impact with our hearts for God in his word is right where we live, our homes. Regardless of the season of life that we're in, you know, and seasons change. Whether we're empty nesters, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're with kids or without kids, um, whether we're living with parents, living with siblings, I mean, those coming into our home. As we shepherd our own mixed-condition hearts first, and we're drawing near to him, pursuing Christ, delighting and growing in our affection for him, by his grace, fighting and dwelling sin, with and from the gospel, we want to place a priority on those household relationships, a priority in making a gospel impact with those that we live with and those who enter into our home, not leapfrogging or neglecting those relationships. It can be easy to do for not purposeful. So it's a good question to ask, what kind of impact or what kind of influence do we have uh, in those relationships? We impact those relationships. Are we having a gospel impact, a gospel influence? Are we growing in that? It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? Very sobering question. But please be encouraged, this too is a lifelong process. And it doesn't happen just because you want it to. Okay? It takes being purposeful with our own hearts. That's why we talk so much about our hearts, about Discipline 1, to see these relationships as a priority, we want to do that. 
with our hearts. And the third discipline, uh, ministry, is where we minister to others. So as we continue to grow in these disciplines, we don't wait until we've mastered them. We never will. But as you are being faithful in your pursuit and growing, you minister to others in the church and then outside of the church and to a lost world with the very same thing, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling your ministry within your household. That's discipline one and two. You step into the church and you step into other people's lives outside of the church with the very same thing. So there are your disciplines. <clears throat> so this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, we are going to, well, this isn't different, but we're because we're going to open up God's Word, and we always want to do that. But we're going to open up God's Word, and we're going to see what His Word says about being a woman. So I'd like to start by asking a couple of questions. How many of you have given much thought to the topic of biblical womanhood? You know, God's design for women. I have another question for you. Do you think that maybe some, if not um, of what we believe about womanhood or femininity is based or influenced by our culture and not based on scripture? There's so many conflicting voices in our culture today. And there's a really loud voice that's been in our culture for the last 50 years or so. Um, and it's been a loud, loud competing voice. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about that voice and how we get to where we, how we've gotten to where we are today. But that's, that's a voice of feminism. <clears throat> so we're going to take an extra amount of time this morning and we're going to look back into history just a little bit, a little bit of uh, what I know. And it's somewhat important to be informed. And then we're going to talk about where we find ourselves today as a culture, at least a little bit that I've learned. I don't know a ton about this. But but most importantly, we're going to open up God's Word, and we're going to see what He has to say in His Word. So, what is feminism? When I say that, what, is, what, am I, what do I mean? Feminism started out by being this radical movement about women's rights. And, you know, we enjoy the right to vote because of that movement. Um, and I'm thankful that it's a privilege. I'm thankful for the privilege, not necessarily right. And in the beginning, the feminist movement started out more about legal rights. Um, it grew and it developed into something much, much more than that. It's a, it, it's a distinct worldview with its own ideologies, values, and ways of thinking. The feminist era was a period of time where feminist ideas, they were being developed, they were being promoted and accepted into our culture. And I'm talking about the last 50 years or so. Even among this movement and their agendas, there really wasn't one consensus regarding their definition of feminism or their meaning of womanhood. It was all over the board. It was really hard to define, but I'll try to describe some of their ideologies. Years ago, there was this huge debate over a woman's right um, to have a career while raising children. That was a huge debate. And we don't really hear about that much anymore. There's still some. Um, there were pro-abortion feminists whose campaign was for the woman's right to take the life of an unborn child. And that was and still is their agenda. There were pro-life feminists who totally opposed abortion while still subscribing to many of the other ideologies of feminism. But the most important thing to understand is this, that women's rights 
and equality in all forms is what they were after. It was about freedom and choice to be whoever and do whatever you want to do. The cultural message in all form was and still is rights, equality, and self-sufficiency. Women started being offended by chivalry, didn't want a man to open their door or pay for their dinner. Songs like, um, I am woman, hear me roar, and R-E-S-P-E-C-T um, were there and still is women's anthems. It was this movement that promoted thoughts that women are better, they're smarter, and they're stronger than men. It was when degrading men became funny and acceptable. Just watch commercials, watch TV. There's a whole mindset of personal authority instead of bowing before the authority of God. So over the past decade or longer, we've been transitioning from this feminist era, they call it, into this post-feminist era. Well, what is the difference? In the feminist era, feminist ideas were being developed, and now they're pretty much fully formed. Their agenda and philosophies were pushed by philosophers and teachers and professors, and now they are embraced and believed by most everyone. They've been integrated into our thinking. The ideas were radical then, and now they're just commonplace. In the feminist era, feminist ideas were identifiable, and now they're indistinguishable. Feminism as a movement seems to be pretty much over. It's really not a movement anymore. It's transitioned into uh, the current mindset and belief of most everyone in our culture now. It has been so mainstreamed into our society, it's just normal. It's in the air we breathe. It's the way we're told to think. What we see when we shop, what we hear what women should be like when we watch TV and movies and entertainment and social media, it's in our books and it's in our educational system. It's in the Girl Scouts of America, girl power, you know? And I love Girl Scouts and Girl Scout cookies um, for sure, but, you know, so I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying there is a message of empowerment there. It's in American Girl Stories. One author said, feminism is so seeped into our culture and mindset, it's like, the in, like intravenous drugs into the veins of an unconscious patient. Women bought into the lie, hook, line, and sinker, hook, line, and sinker, that feminism and all of its forms will bring women what they want. You know, and they wanted joy, they want fulfillment, they want purpose, they want meaning of life, and they want what they think they deserve. And all this demeaning uh, or demanding of rights, it was supposed to bring women greater fulfillment and freedom and liberation and all of that. It was supposed to make women feel better about themselves, but instead, it's really just the opposite. And we know that what they're seeking can only be filled by the transforming power of the gospel. When we humbly acknowledge the truth of the gospel, repent and believe in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and all the realities of what he has accomplished on the cross and realities of the gospel and then live according to God's design, that's when we're going to find fulfillment. That's when we're going to find true joy. Because all of that yearning and that longing for something more, it will not be filled with anything else 
It can't be filled by the formula that our culture has been given by feminism. Okay, so where do we find ourselves today as a culture? Well, pretty confused. Pretty confused. Our upcoming post-feminist generation or third wave or whatever, there's all this terminology. It it's, has little or sadly no understanding of God's design for men and God's design for women. Many reject completely his plan for uh, his plan and design for gender at all. One of the most recent and devastating debates is over the God-given differences between men and women. Today, many men and women are despising their God-given gender. There is so much talk about gender confusion, gender disorder, gender identity, gender neutrality. We're seeing even more of you know, what's been going on for years where men and women believe that they were born uh, with wrong body parts. Um, females want to be males. Males want to be females. There's more and more surgeries to reconstruct. They call them reassignment surgeries. Parents are giving their uh, children hormone replacement drugs, basically to switch their hormones out. I've read quite a few blogs, and it's just so sad to see the hopelessness and the despair and, and the rebellion. And, you know, we know that they don't need new body parts, right? We know they need new hearts, just like we needed a new heart. I needed a new heart. I was completely rebellious, too, as well. But God, in his mercy, he gave me, he gave us, a new heart, and he changed everything. So let's just keep that in mind as we talk about this, um, as, we, as we love others who are created in the image of God, as we pray for others, and that God in his mercy would save them as well. Okay? So, in this push to be whatever gender they decide they want to be, there are those who don't want to be recognized as a gender at all. It's, they want to be gender neutral. This is really, really happening. It's becoming more and more mainstream and accepted. Um, they want to be recognized as human beings rather than he, she, her, him. More and more parents are raising their children to be gender neutral, allowing them to decide their gender when they get older. They're working on coming up with an official pronoun for them. There's blogs on how to raise gender-neutral children and communities encouraging one another in that. They're calling their children princess boys and boy chicks. There's, um, I, just, I just heard in the news recently, there's a very popular Hollywood couple allowing their child to choose what gender they want to be. I've mentioned before that there's this preschool in Sweden where... Um, it's operating under the theory that by eliminating any reference to gender, these little preschoolers, they're not going to fall prey to stereotypes of gender roles. And so they say there's no boys, no girls, and uh, they, they have come up with an official pronoun for them now. And they've opened a second school. And uh, I believe that's sort of happening uh, in Canada as well. I don't know if anything's happening like that here yet. It's coming. It's, it's only a matter of time. Um, on our U.S. passport, 
court applications for children, the word mother and father has been changed. It's been removed and replaced with gender neutral terminology. Um, parent one and parent two, just saying we're confronting situations that we wouldn't have confronted 10 or 15 years ago. More and more universities are providing gender neutral accommodations for the students to, um, well, I'm not even gonna get, get into that, but the decision in a, a high school in Minnesota um, it, for next year is making the state the 33rd to adopt a formal transgender student policy. The board set out the criteria for determining whether transgender students who were born male but identify as females can be eligible for girls teams in sports. It's already, um, the law already permits the, the girls to compete in boys sports. In Michigan there was a high school who declared, and I, I think that's probably more high schools, but where there's no prom court, no king and queen, um, in order to accommodate transgender students. There are cities in the United States that cover sex reassignment surgeries, um, saying that it's, a me it's medically necessary, and I believe Obamacare now pays for at least part of that. I could go on and on and on. And this isn't to cause fear. This is just to inform. We're in a different time than we were even five or 10 years ago. And the important thing to remember and to know is all of this is denying our Creator's perfect design. The secular world is now deeply committed to this idea of gender neutrality. They want a world free of any concern for gender, a world where masculinity and femininity, femininity are completely erased, not just blurred, but completely erased as old-fashioned ideas. That's just old fashion. Or at least the category of male and female is just negotiable. Their argument is that we have the right to make whatever adjustments and alterations and transformations in gender and gender relationships that we desire, demanding that right. And in all of this, it's denying the one who created them. This is a full-on attack against God, who created us in his own image, male and female, and, and we need to see it this way. John Piper and Wayne Grudem write this, the tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance in our maleness and our femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss it is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more emotional distress, and suicide that comes with the loss of this God-given identity. Now this is the world we live in. This is where godlessness has taken us. And this is what sin does. This is all about someone exalting self over against what all the rest of what even, even a culture understood for the last thousand of years. It's an exaltation of self against God. And you know, what I'm saying may not be politically correct, right?
but that's okay because we want to be biblically correct. It should come as no huge surprise to any of us that the secular world is confused and completely distorted about the identity and calling of a woman. But what's worse is to the extent in which that worldly philosophy of our cultures influenced even the evangelical world. We may not even know it, but I can almost guarantee you that none of us in this room is exempt from being affected by it. In fact, one author says scores of evangelical women are functional feminists because the world's paradigm for womanhood is the only one they ever heard. That was me. See, the, those ideas, not all of them, I mean, they're just not out there because God in his grace, he saves people. He saves us out of the culture and he gives us a new heart and then he brings us into the church and we bring some of that thinking in. I did, but of course... Um, so, of course, it's going to come into the church. But the church, rather than holding up the word of God and exalting God's design for men and women, teaching and discipling has, in many cases, let that ideology into its teaching and into its ideology. And so we see gender-neutral Bibles now, women's ministers and pastors and preachers and gay clergy and so on. In the past, truths about gender were generally caught, but now, ladies, they must be intentionally taught. The default setting has changed, even for those raised in the church. We can't assume that people in our church have a biblical framework for understanding these things. Manhood, womanhood, and male-female relationships have become primarily a teaching and a discipleship issue. And we must teach. We, but in order to teach, we must know. It's so critical that we're grounded in deep, gospel-centered theology about God's design for gender. It's essential in order to combat the relational and sexual and marital carnage that accompanies this worldly mindset. So as the solution to rewind the clock and go back to the 1950s and go back to the Leave it to Beaver era? No. The solution is to embrace the word of God, to embrace and trust his divine design in this culture right where he has us. So we need to know and we need to humbly speak and we need to live out clearly what the Bible teaches about womanhood without fear, even though, you know, we may be persecuted for speaking that truth, but we do it and we do it in love and with confidence. And we teach God's plan for women and for men to our sons and to our daughters, the next generation. There's so much at stake. Grace Bible Church has eight biblical convictions. And you have the web link, I believe, on the bottom of your notes. And we are just basically going to go over uh, biblical conviction of Grace Bible Church, number seven, biblical manhood and womanhood in our church. And we're going to survey scripture this morning where we will see God doing two things throughout his word, his sufficient and inerrant word that cannot be separated. So throughout your outline, you'll see this. You'll see spiritual equality, men and women are spiritually equal before God and each other, and then you'll see role differentiation or role differences the distinctions and differences between the roles of men and women in our families and in our church. Men and women are 
spiritually equal before God. And we have different roles in our families and in the church. And on your outline, you'll see that we, we kind of broke it down, or it's broken down in three sec- segments. The Old Testament, Jesus' treatment of women, and then we're going to look um, at some more in the New Testament. So it's important to understand this. These two biblical realities are inseparable. Men and women are spiritually equal before God and others, and there are distinctions and differences in the roles. This is called the complementarian view. We're past your introduction now, barely. We embrace this complementarian view because that's how God's revealed it to be in Scripture. And we embrace this view because of the amazing revelation that biblical manhood and biblical womanhood brings into this dark culture and this dark world. Listen, we will find freedom and joy not casting off his design, but embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is making God more clearly known. So let's embrace whatever God has given to us to make him more visible. So we don't have to look to our culture to find our identity. We don't have to consult our feelings to discover our purpose. There's only one place to go to know what it means to be a woman at any age, any stage of life, young, old, married, single, whatever season. And that is God in his word. He made woman. Elizabeth Elliot says, in order to learn what it means to be a woman, we must start with the one who made her. So let's turn, finally, to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, and we're going to look at the Old Testament um, and spiritual, starting with spiritual equality in the Old Testament. So from the very beginning, we see in Scripture that men and women are equally created in the image of God. Starting in verse, let's start in verse 26, and I'll read. Then God said, let us make a man in our image according to our likeness and Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is his design. Male and female were created in the image of God. Neither one has more or less of God's image. Then the other, man and woman, are equally totaled by sin. Neither one is more sinful than the other. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, we're all image bearers. We're all created in the image of God. And, and in chapter 1 of Colossians, you don't have to turn there because I'm going to go through pretty fast. But in chapter 1 of Colossians, it says that Jesus, says he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So we can look to Jesus to see what that image is. And what did it look like for Jesus to bear the image of God? Philippians 2.6 2, 6 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, he existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus existed in the form of God. And form is a similar word to image. He existed in the image of God, so um, and, then, and then it says he didn't regard that unity, that equality with God as something to be grasped after. But verse 7 says 
he emptied himself. He emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not promote himself. He didn't fight for his rights. But rather, here in verse 7, he emptied himself. He emptied himself taking on the form of a slave. This is interesting. Being in the form of God led him to take on the form of a slave. The image of God is that of serving and not grasping after yourself, your ideas, or your self-promotion, but humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. Jesus confirmed this when he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, rather what? To serve, right. He gave his life away for many. So that's the image in which men and women were created, to bear this kind of self-giving love that's in Christ. However, men and women also have been um, equally impacted and corrupted by sin. After man was created in God's image in Genesis 1, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin enters the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about God's majesty and his awesome power and his perfect design and abundance. We can't even relate to humanity that is perfectly innocent. Unfortunately, we can relate to chapter 3, right? So we go from his majesty and his wonder in chapters 1 and 2 to very familiar territory where the serpent comes, Eve is attacked at the very image of God in her. He slandered God and Eve's heart was enticed. She became a self-grasper. That's how Scott uh, has this terminology going, a self-grasper, tarnishing the display of God's image in her. It tarnishes God's dis, uh, display, the, the display of God's image in her. And that's what we do when we live for ourselves. So Eve sinned, and then Adam gave in, and these two self-graspers, they obscured that image of God in them. And we've, we've all been plagued with that ever since. So all men and women are created in the image of God. We're equally impacted and corrupted by sin's presence and sin's power. Men and women are both equally unable to change their sin sinful condition, and they're both equally in need of, a, of salvation. One is not more in the image of God than the other, and one is not more spiritually bankrupt than the other. We are spiritually equal, but there are differences in our roles that God has for us. Let's look at role differentiation. Let's turn to, to Genesis 2. <clears throat> Genesis 2, starting in verse 18, where God shows us his purpose in creating the woman. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into the woman the rib 
which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. It was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. God created man for a particular task, and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to complete or complement him in fulfilling the task and taking dominion over the earth. So God created Eve. Adam didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. So right here, we already see the differing roles before, before the fall, before sin entered the world. Even the order in which they were created is linked to different roles, but it doesn't affect our spiritual equality at all. So God created man first, and then woman. God had an order in mind when he created, an order that Paul will repeatedly appeal to in the New Testament. You guys hanging in there? You doing okay? 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that okay, Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. You see that there's order there. There's order. So God always established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. <clears throat> in Israel, we see that men were responsible for the national and religious leadership. From the garden to the final prophets, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, D Jacob, David, to the rest of the kings and priesthoods of Israel, the prophets of the nation, um, and then the women, they were also active, though, in the re religious life in the nation. There was Miriam and Huldah. <clears throat> they were prophetesses. And Deborah was a judge. But what we do not have <clears throat> an account for in the Old Testament is significant. Excuse me. There were never any um, <clears throat> women priests. There were never any heads of tribes. There were never any kings. And that's, that's important and it's significant. All right, so let's turn back to um, chapter 3 again in Genesis. And we're going to notice what sin does. Sin distorted their God-given roles, right? Um, but it didn't introduce it. Remember, man and woman already had their roles prior to the fall. Their roles were not introduced as punishment after or because of the fall. It's important to know that. Our roles are not God's punishment for sin at all. The distortion of our roles doesn't start when God pronounced the curse on woman, uh, on women in Genesis 3. It started at the very beginning of chapter 3 where we find Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter. He's evil and deceptive. In verse 6, she believed his lie that, and, uh, that if she gave in, she would become wise and that God was keeping something from her. So she disobeyed God and she ate. And she gave it to her husband and he rebelliously ate. So we already see that. Who's she trusting in? She's trusting in herself and her own wisdom. Think about Eve. Well, think about what Eve's sin was. We can already identify, like, the independence, the self-grasping, the self-reliance. What was she even doing listening to the serpent, anyway? She trusted in her own judgment, getting out from under God's authority, out from under her husband. 
and seeking to satisfy herself, rebelling against God. And at that point, was Eve fulfilling her role as a helper? No. How does that acknowledge Adam's leadership over her? How does it honor God's right to define her role? Adam certainly had his part and is fully responsible as well. Well, in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie that she could trust herself more than she could trust God. And as we live in this mixed condition that we've been talking about, thankfully this side of the cross, how, do, how can we see this in our own hearts? Well, just like Eve, if we're married, we may independently step out from under our husband's protection and leadership and seek control over him. We may do it by taking charge and seeking to control or exert our own will. It may look like that, stepping outside of God's design. And you may be thinking, you know, I'm pretty sure I don't do that. I'm pretty sure I don't try to control. But it can show up in, or you may be thinking already, yes, you do. But it can show up in various ways, too. For some of us, trying to control may be a really quiet, smoldering, pouty, silent treatment. Sometimes that hostility can take on an attitude of coldness or indifference. Well, with others, it's a shouting hostility that isn't much of a secret to anybody, especially those in your household. And for some of us, we have such a way of just bulldozing right over others with our words, right? And I know I can relate to that. And this is what sin does. <clears throat> Do you know why God gave us roles? Because he has something to communicate through them. And sin's motive is to destroy that image through undoing the roles that God has for us. Sin distorts our God-given role differences. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forfeited life in uh, the goodness of the garden. They traded unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth and childbearing and childrearing. We now deal with disease and sickness, physical complications and pain, even in raising and nurturing children. Many of us know that well. There's also death, and most importantly, there's separation from God. Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we are no different. See, men, equal rights, gender is not the problem. Like the world would have us think, our problem is sin. Sin warps everything. James tells us that sin is the reason for jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice that characterizes false witness. Sin is the reason we need a Savior. <clears throat> now we're going to look back, um, moving on in your outline, and we're going to um, see how Jesus emphasized the exact same thing. There's just this consistent pattern running through his word. And it's God's plan from way back, and it's conti it continues to grow. And we're on number two on your outline. And this is where Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with man in the midst of this. It was a, it was a woman demeaning culture, a woman demeaning Greek and Roman and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions. 
They're not even worth teaching the Torah to. In fact, they believed it was better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual and theological things. Men in Jesus' day normally would not allow um, to even count women to count change into their hand for fear of physical contact. But Jesus, Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women. There are references on your outline, and you can take a look at, <clears throat> maybe look them up later. But I'll summarize them. In Matthew, <clears throat> Jesus uses illustrations and images familiar and useful for women. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to women. In John 4, in Luke 10, 38, we've already, we've seen that Jesus taught Mary as she sat at his feet, which was so countercultural. Jesus touched women, and he allowed them to touch him. In Luke 8, 1 through 3, Jesus allowed women to travel with him and his disciples, and that was super countercultural. In John 20, Jesus revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead, sending her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not allowing women to witness because they were considered liars. See, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion, and he showed them respect in a way they had never known in their culture. He did not demean women at all. And all of this demonstrates their spiritual equality. Jesus, at the same time, he did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also didn't do, though he clearly could have, is to choose women to be among the 12. That would have been a, uh, a perfect time to do that, a prime opportunity to change what God so far had revealed in the Old Testament, um, a time to establish you know, different roles for women. But he didn't change women's roles. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't choose uh, women disciples? Well, because he affirms and he continues God's view and God's pattern for the role of women revealed in the Old Testament. And that leads us to number three on your outline. The rest of the New Testament under uh, spiritual equality. And let's go ahead and look at uh, Galatians 3. Turn to Galatians 3. <clears throat> Galatians 3, verse 28, says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> this is talking about redemp redemption. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another. You see some examples on your outline um, with Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18, 26. They ministered together. They were husband and wife, and they ministered together. They equally served Apollos to build him up with more complete teaching and in in, uh, teaching on Christ and to correct some doctrine. Uh, they did that together. And then in Philippians 4, uh, Odia and Sintuke, they uh, were both women, and they shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel with him. And we also see that both men and women receive spiritual gifts. And in 1 Peter 3, it says that wives are the fellow heir of the grace of life. 
However, there are differences in roles. You know, it's so easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament. We love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We love that, that men and women, they're equally in need for Jesus, equally in need um, of the cleansing, of cleansing in his blood. But <clears throat> ladies, the gospel is on display every bit as much in the different roles God describes for men and women in the New Testament. He's designed different roles specifically for us in order that we participate together in displaying the gospel. Remember what we see in his word in the word is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It's not inspired by the culture of the day. You see your references on your outline where the different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described. Described, and I'm going to summarize them. Um, Basically, we would say that leadership roles for the church, um, uh, the elders and the deacons are offices filled by men. The primary broader teaching responsibility rests on the men. This is God's design for displaying the love of Christ for his church. Men have um, this incredible responsibility to display Christ in his loving servant leadership toward the body. So, it's a good time to ask and evaluate, you know, am I making that God-given role a joy for them, for our leaders? This role to serve and lead us, or am I making it a burden? And women, uh, the role that, and privilege that God has given us in the church about displaying the supportive and submission character of the church and her relationship to her Savior. We respond, we follow the lead of our elders, we follow the lead um, of our elders and of our deacons. So when we serve um, in our ministries in the church, they are all overseen by elders and deacons. Wellspring is um, overseen by the elders, and I love that. I love that that's, that's protection for us. See, the elders, they love God. They love his church. They take their role seriously, and in that, they love and care for us, and they serve us in their leadership. We need their shepherding. We need their leadership, and it's so comforting to know that we have it here. This now is all about how God displays his love and care and protection and leadership for his people, and how we, his people, Trust him and follow him, follow his lead. And in marriage, we find the very same principle at work. Husbands have this mind-boggling responsibility, this calling to love their wives. How? Like Christ loved the church? So, here's another question. I'm giving news questions because I have to ask them myself when I'm like looking at all of this. But do you see this high calling that husbands have? Wives, how are you helping them in that? How are you helping them love you like Christ loved the church? Are you making that easier for them, easy for them, or are you hindering that? Are you being lovable? This responsibility to love uh, their wives as Christ loved the church, just think about that. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself to purchase us for himself. 
So if you are married, you can display your trusting submission. Listen, you can display your trusting submission to your Savior by submitting to your husband as to the Lord. doesn't say if he's loving you the way you, you know, it doesn't say if he's doing that. It says as unto the Lord. And if you're not married, you have the privilege to display your trusting submission to the Lord by submitting to the authorities that God has placed um, over you. Whether it's your parents, whether it's a boss, and the elders of the church. See, when men and women fulfill their God-given roles, and we as women live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders and under our husbands, what happens? The word of God is honored, and the gospel is put on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to a watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus, in relationship with his bride, Jesus, in relationship with his bride. That's why we embrace who God has created us to be, because God has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world through not only our spiritual equality, but also to what our different roles are. Okay, so how do the different roles reveal our great God? Well, first of all, think of the members of the Godhead. They each have different roles, along with their divine equality. Man and woman, they give us a simpler picture of who our triune three-in-one God is. Think about this. Each of the three members of the Godhead reveal the image of God to be this self-giving love. Each of the three manifests this self-giving love toward one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. He gives himself over to the Father's will to (coughs) redeem his people. And the Spirit gives himself to reveal the Son to his people. And both recreated man and woman equally possess this image within. But that image is enhanced, it's magnified, and it's glorified, not by men and women having the same exact roles. The son takes on a different role than the father, right? Without losing any deity. So see, to diminish any one of their unique roles would cause us to miss something about who God is. And the same is true with the different roles given to men and different roles given to women and the roles given to single women and the roles given to married women because our roles are unique privileges given by God. It's kind of laying a foundation. In a few weeks, we'll be covering more on this regarding our biblical roles as women um, in marriage and uh, singleness. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So this is important. If we seek to erase these God-given roles, then we make the image of God within us less visible. We're image bearers of the living God. Think about that for a minute. We are image bearers of the living God, and we're equal before the cross, and he's given us different divinely assigned roles. And when male and female live and work together as God intended, it's so beautiful. There's joy And it's satisfying, and it's God-glorifying. So let's grow and encourage one another to embrace and love the roles he has for us, because God will best be seen within us 
within our marriages, within our families, within our church, and within our culture as we are obedient to him, to those roles he's given us. And because it exalts God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And to not live up to the role God's given us as men and women or to cross role boundaries that God has for us is to cloud the visibility in and through us as redeemed people. And it's to send this distorted, distorted message to the world around us. And we don't want to do that. His created order is beautiful. God took delight in it. And what did he say? It is good. It is good. But because these are such critical images, is it any wonder they're at the center of such a strong battle today? We shouldn't be surprised that Satan wants to wage war, our flesh wants to wage war, and our culture wants to wage war. God determined how we best glorify him. So we need to look at God's heart. We need to see his heart for male, see his heart for female, his heart for authority, his heart for leadership, and bow. We must look at all of it and say, God, you tell me how I best glorify you, and I will humbly bring myself in line with that. And you know, if we're not grounding our lives and our thinking, if we're not shepherding our hearts in his word, if we don't understand what his word says, what it means to be a woman biblically and how those roles are to function within the home and within our church and within the culture, then sooner or later we're going to be vulnerable in our homes, in our churches, and in our culture to the very same kind of thing that's turned the secular culture upside down. Listen, theology matters. Theology matters. Your view of God will determine your view of every other aspect of your life. So we need to take this seriously. Because when we choose to live apart from his design, we distort the gospel picture, and we miss the entire point of being a woman. And you know, every time I value my independence, my own life plans, my opinions over what would bring God glory, and displaying the gospel, it's rebellion against God and who he created me to be. And you know the truth apart from the gospel, this really makes no sense. None of life makes sense apart from the gospel. It's our only motivator to live in the fullness of God's good plan and, and gospel purposes. Scripture instructs us in Titus 2, as Christian women, to be reverent and not gossips and not enslaved to much wine, and to teach what is good and to love our husbands and love our children and be sensible, to be pure to be workers at home, showing hospitality, being kind. And we do this not to dishonor God's word. Titus 2 instructs us as older women, we're to teach the younger women. And ladies, we need to be teaching our daughters. And we need to be teaching our sons God's design for them as male and female. They need to hear the truth from God's word from creation regarding biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. So they will recognize and reject that loud, worldly voice. And so they can be confident in who God created them to be. Right? And lastly, 
another loud competing voice from our culture, and it's getting louder and louder, and it has been for years and years, is that of sexuality and sensuality. We, li we live in a culture of extremes. Sensuality and sexuality is big money. It sells, and it's being marketed to us in every way. 1 Timothy 2.9 says that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. That's countercultural. We're called to be modest. We're called to be discreet and self-controlled in our actions and how we dress. See, our attitude, our behavior, and our dress is all a matter of worship. This is what John MacArthur says. You show me a woman with a beautiful character. You show me a woman with a meek and quiet spirit. You show me a woman who has an incorruptible heart. You show me a woman who comes to worship God. And I'll show you a woman whose wardrobe you don't have to worry about because her heart dictates that issue. It's a matter of conviction. Modesty is a matter of conviction. The way we dress goes right to the heart of why we wear what we wear. Any discussion on modesty begins with the heart, not what we're wearing, not, they used to say, like, with the hemline. The world's loud competing voice to us is that we can make much of ourselves. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to flaunt ourselves however we want, flaunt certain features. And that you have the right, you have the freedom to dress however you want and expose whatever you want. It's your body, right? If you don't like it, don't look kind of attitude. That's what the world would say, but it's different for us. It's so different for us. We're called and have the privilege to display something way more glorious, our Savior. 1 Corinthians six nineteen uh, says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 3 says, Our beauty, it doesn't come from our outward adornment, that it should be, um, that it should be the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of what? what we've been talking about in Wellspring, right? With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So what should our aim be as women? Well, if we profess, profess Christ, our motivation for what we wear is to be distinct, is to be different from our culture. And you know, while men are fully responsible before God for their mind, for their hearts, for their eyes, they're fully responsible. Guys, still they can be stimulated visually by the things they see, even when they don't want to, when they're battling. So when we dress immodestly, it sends a visual, visual message to a guy, whether, whether we mean to or not. So, another question, are we placing an obstacle in their way by how we dress. In Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about going to great effort to help a brother not stumble. 
in his walk with the Lord. We don't want to do that. So whether we understand it or not, guys are in a battle. Most guys, they're just in a battle. They just are. You know, we have battles too. And some of them may be some of the very same things. But it's, it's really intense for many guys. So we can help them and we can love them by dressing modestly. Someone said, by giving guys a rest for their eyes. Does that sound like something we'd want to do? Give them a rest. So, questions we can ask. Are our clothes provocative? Are they seductive? Do they honor nakedness? Do our clothes honor nakedness? What's the purpose of clothes? Anyone? To cover, yeah. The purpose of clothes is to cover nakedness, not draw attention to nakedness, not to draw attention to naked skin, especially certain areas. Modesty, I think this is so good, and I got this from someone else. I got just all this from other people. So, But modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. Modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. It's a desire to honor God and serve others. It's a desire to honor God and serve others, particularly men, and not promote or provoke sensuality or lust. Modesty means you agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing. You agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing, and you set aside your self-interest to dress in a way that exalts Christ. <clears throat> so, um, this is really uncomfortable <laughs> for me to talk about. It really is. I just like go back and forth. Say it, don't say it, you know, kind of thing. Um, but we're all women and we're mature, right? And we just need to have these kinds of conversations and I wish I could just turn that off. But um, there are parts, I mean, you guys know this, but there are parts of our bodies that that are considered naked and they need to be covered, right? They're maybe for, if you're married, for husband's eyes only, not for um, my husband's eyes <laughs> or anyone else's husband's eyes, right? They need to be covered um, or future husband's eyes. But one, one in particular that we see out in the culture and we just see um, is, is breasts. Breasts are just kind of out there and it's become the norm to expose them and um, you know, whether, not necessarily always fully, but even just part, cleavage causes men to lust. That's just the truth. It just does. Not all men, but many men. So, maybe we should really evaluate that. And, you know what, if you see me dressing immodestly, I need you to, I need you to tell me. Like, I'm standing up here, but that doesn't mean that I might have a slippage. So we need to be sure we're like helping one another in love as sisters in Christ. Um, there, are, there are others, you know, high shorts and, you know, just certain things cause certain guys. And you know what? I'm not saying that we wear gunny sacks and that we cover our ankles. I'm not saying that at all because that would be silly and that would draw attention too, right? That would just be the wrong kind of attention and, you know, it would be wrong. But I'm just saying let's... Let's love the Lord, let's dress modestly, let's honor um, one another and our brothers in Christ. 
The world rebelliously flaunts, seduces, and markets with sexuality and sensuality. Are we being seduced and are we being lured by the world's temptation to look more like the world? Or are we loving and worshiping God by taking care and purposeful in how we dress? Modesty really is about conviction. What I wear relates to who I worship, how I worship, how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. So when shopping, you know, have intentionality. Ask someone else with the same conviction. You know, um, I, and again, I need your help, sisters. And in closing, I just want to say this. There will always be cultural trends. There will always be shifts and change. But we can take our cues and definitions from Scripture and not the culture. We can confidently trust in that. The Word of God, it never, ever changes. That's so comforting. Without a doubt, in our mixed condition hearts, we'll always have to guard against our self-willed mindset in our own hearts, right? We'll always have to guard that. And I hope that after today you will ask God, where has this kind of thinking, maybe worldly thinking, feminist thinking, how has that seeped in to my heart? Our lives are about bringing glory to Jesus Christ. And we, we, and we do that as male and female in distinct ways. That's why God created us, male and female, to tell the this great love story of bridegroom Jesus Christ and the bride, his church. Men and women point to that story in different ways as men and women. That's why it's so important that we get our womanhood right and we do our womanhood the way that God's word points us to. Let's pray. Well, Father, we... We do ask that you, by your spirit and grace, will you help us see if there's any kind of change, any, any way we're not glorifying you in our role, in our thinking, in how we dress, in how we worship you. Thank you that you have distinctly, um, you've created us in your image and we have distinct roles and it all brings glory to you and may we embrace that and love it and display it to our families and to a lost world offer your glory that your name would be made known oh we love you and we just we just lift up our discussion time now um lord be glorified and um it's in your son's name we pray amen <laughs>